Okay, Pasa Mufasa, namaste. Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. Today on the pod, we've got an extraordinary mycophile, filmmaker, and storyteller who's going to be regaling us with tales of hunting wild Cordyceps sinensis in the Annapurna region of Nepal, where he had the good fortune of participating in a foraging expedition alongside local Nepali mushroom hunters who rely on these highly valued medicinal fungi to sustain the livelihoods of their entire family. Everybody, please give a warm welcome to Hamilton Pevick. Hunting Cordyceps is the same as hunting any other mushroom that's difficult to see and it's all about pattern recognition you train your brain to look for these specific features and then you scan the landscape and the closer you get to the ground the more likely you are to see it so that's why they're like literally on their hands and knees today hamilton's going to walk us through the behind the scenes realities of the life of suklal his brother-in-law and the protagonist of the film suklal's hunt we're going to learn about the ecological and the socioeconomic context of the annual cordyceps hunt that Suklal engages in to feed his family, as well as the much larger cordyceps trade in neighboring Bhutan and Tibet. All that and a whole lot more. So go ahead and sip away on your chai, heat up a couple of momos. Yeah, that's a regional dish in Nepal. Your boys had a bunch of them. I was out there for six weeks back in 2014. So this is a great episode for us. Very stoked that you're here listening in. Namaste. Let's get this show on the road. Okay, pasa mufasa. Hamilton Pevick of Faux Real Films and Hamilton's Mushroom Extracts. Welcome to the Michaelpreneur Podcast. How are we doing today? I'm very well. Thank you, Dennis. It's great to be here. I'm excited to speak with you. Well, I've had a fantastic day, and one of the highlights was getting to watch the extended cut of Suklal's Hunt, which had me feeling some type of way. It is a beautiful work of art and an extremely timely piece that asks some important questions about sustainability and socioeconomic development in the global south, and it's educational without being dry, thanks to the winsome protagonist Suklal, whose two-month-long pursuit of Cordyceps sinensis in the Annapurna region of Nepal is, of course, the premise of the film. Never have I ever watched a film and so badly wanted to swap places with the oxygen-deprived cinematographer. So first things first, Hamilton, how many of the Cordyceps sinensis that you guys found up there did you actually get to consume? Actually, very little. I wasn't eating them very often, maybe one a day at most while I was in the high country. But the way the locals like to consume them is by dropping them in the Roxy, which is a 20% rice liquor. Then they let it soak in the alcohol for a little while and then and then drink the alcohol. And it's a kind of like lo-fi alcohol extraction for the fresh caterpillar fungus. I found myself feeling surprised that Suklal would openly share his process and information about the hunt with a film crew and a global audience, seeing as how he mentions in the film that there's been an increasing number of cordyceps hunting competitors in the last few years. He seems unconcerned with sharing the good news that one can literally walk out their front door if you live in a certain region of Nepal and walk above the tree line and find some dead bugs with a fungus growing out of them that you can cash in and you can feed your family for the whole year if you're lucky. So how did you first connect with Suklal and was he immediately on board with making this film? 
Or did it take some finessing? Suklal is actually my brother-in-law, and that's why I was granted access to join him. And he holds the permit for his whole area to be able to hunt these mushrooms. And so what that means is anybody who's with him is allowed to be there. And with the caveat that I was not allowed to collect or use these mushrooms personally. So I was allowed to go as long as I didn't touch them, more or less. When I initially heard about this mushroom caterpillar, that's what, that's what it was described to me as. They were like, oh, it's mushroom season in the high country. They're going mushroom hunting. Are you interested in going? I'm like, of course I'm interested in going. Like, what kind of mushrooms are up there? And they're like, oh, well, actually, well, they're going after this insect mushroom, this caterpillar mushroom. I'm like, what? And I had only been hunting mushrooms for four or five years, and cordyceps never came on my radar because I'm primarily hunting mushrooms in the high alpine of Colorado or the the Pacific Northwest. So, you know, cordyceps was like this new crazy wild thing. And when immediately when I heard about it, I was like, oh yes, I am going. Like, let's go. Like, when do we begin? So when I when I arrived in my wife's village where Suklal lives, it's a very tiny village called Dumba. It's just outside the airport town of Jomsom in Lower Mustang. So it's in the Annapurna Massive. It's I think the airport's at about eight and a half thousand feet, and then we hiked uh, to above tree line where we spent most of our time at like thirteen or fourteen thousand feet, and in this zone where it's like high rocky meadows essentially. I told Suklal first of all, like, can I go with you? He said, absolutely, you can go with me. Just don't touch any of the mushrooms. I said, great. I said, I said, can I film it? He said, absolutely. You know. Go for it. Film it. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to tag along. I'm going to talk to you. You know, here's how I'm going to shoot it. And um, he was totally on board from the very beginning. But I think to his, to be fair, he probably wasn't entirely sure about my process or what my intentions were with the film. I shot this in 2013. And then I made a rough cut. And then it sat on the back burner until COVID hit. And when I was in quarantine, I had just escaped Nepal from their lockdown. I basically got on one of the last flights out of Nepal in March of 2020 and got home, but immediately was sent to a trailer for quarantine. And while I was in quarantine, I was like, I unearthed this project and I thought, you know, this is it. This is the time to work on it. And so I started putting it together and it was one of the most deeply satisfying creative endeavors I have taken on in a long time. It spoke to both of my passions and it was the first time in a long time that I got to make a film that was a tr truly a passion project where you know I, I had all this great beautiful cinematography and I had this solid story and I was looking for this missing piece you know like I needed an expert to to sort of shed light, to give context to what we were doing out there in the mountains and to give context to how valuable it is and how essential the work is that Suklal does going out to forge these mushrooms. And so that's when I approached Daniel Winkler and said, hey, will you speak to this? Because I knew he was a cordyceps expert and I had seen him speak at Telluride and followed him and his mushrooming projects and all this. He agreed to to lend his interview to the project. And when when I interviewed him 
and I got that content and I started mixing it together, it was like fireworks going off. I like I knew I had a great film and it was like, yes, like <laughs> like I just love the way it, it came together so easily and so perfectly. And then of course I had to backpedal enormously to make it less than 10 minutes for its world premiere at the Fungi Film Festival. I am going to release the director's cut very soon, very soon. I find it quite interesting that Suklal doesn't get high on his own supply. He seems uninterested and detached from this fact that he routinely has access to one of the world's most coveted natural medicines. As far as you're aware, Hamilton, are there other Nepalis that you've come across who use the cordyceps mushroom themselves in a medicinal context, or is it purely business for them? Yeah, there are a few medicine people and shamans that use it. However, the Buddhist attitude towards harvesting and using this medicine is they, they, they frown upon it. It's a little bit taboo because it's a living entity. So these Buddhists are primarily, well, they're supposed to be vegetarians. And so the teaching is that this living mushroom that once was a caterpillar should not be consumed because it's alive. So yes, people use it, but primarily they're a little standoffish because it's more valuable, you know, traded for money than it is as a medicine for their personal use. There was only one medicine man, a monk actually, who knew how to prepare it and, and, and give it to people for medicinal uses. It's just not used very often. However, it is available to them if it's prescribed. Cordyceps sinensis is known as the world's most expensive parasite, which is a title being bitterly contested by a number of actors in the global political class. And I've read that cordyceps hunting accounts for as much as 25% of the entire country of Bhutan's GDP. And there are literally tens of millions of dollars tied to this trade, yet there seems to be no notable social unrest or discord surrounding the trade in Nepal, though it is quite a bit smaller there than in neighboring Himalayan countries such as Tibet and Bhutan. Now, the film touches on this distinction a little bit regarding the relative value of the cordyceps trade and the safety net that surrounds it, where there's not the kind of violent commotion or disruption that one might expect. Looking at the social climate and criminal elements disrupting the trade of valuable commodities in places like South Africa and Brazil, etc., why do you suppose there's not much of a racket or a danger surrounding the trading of cordyceps in Nepal when they're so highly valuable in this country where most people are living far below the global poverty line? Well, that's a complicated question, and it's a complicated answer. There's a lot of variables that go into that. The regions where the mushroom actually turns up in Nepal are controlled by the locals. Like there's no r true government oversight. There's no regulatory agency. This is like a, a village by village control system. So if they see someone who's not a local up in their territory, they ask them to leave. And and that's how it's regulated for the most part. And and there may be some exceptions to that, and my experience has only been in this one place in Annapurna, so I don't know like how they do it on the other side of the mountains, or in eastern Nepal, or in western Nepal, or something like this. The systems could be different, but everything generally from 
from road taxes to to harvesting wild resources are controlled by the locals in that area. And that, that goes as far as from the mushrooms to harvesting wood to build houses. And yeah, it actually can be dangerous. Now, there are rumors of, of dangerous things happening, people being attacked. I didn't hear any like firsthand stories of of people getting robbed for their harvest or anything like that in Nepal. But those stories are rampant in the Tibetan plateau where there's this way higher concentration of foragers all going after the same prize. And so when I was doing research for the film, I was looking up, you know, all kinds of different stuff. A couple of stories that kept coming up were like, you know, you know unsolved murders where bodies were turning up. Um, you know, f- you know, random anonymous foragers were being found dead, and people, you know, having their harvest stolen from them. And I suspect that that happens very little in Nepal, but I don't think it doesn't happen. I think the reason why it doesn't happen very often, or or if it does, it's very low key, is that it's all locally controlled. So you can't get away with anything in these super tight communities where everybody knows everybody and you know it creates safety for everybody because they all know each other there's about 182 tons of wild cordyceps harvested every year and of that 182 tons nepal makes up about two to three tons of that harvest so just to put that in perspective Bhutan makes up about like I think it's like five to six tons of that harvest and the all rest of that comes from the Tibetan plateau and almost all of that goes to the Chinese markets because that's where the biggest demand is. I mean we're talking these tiny you know they're like maybe a few grams each dried and so just a kilo is like this massive armload and if you can imagine a ton (laughs) We're talking literal truckloads of this mushroom. Everyone handpicked out of the dirt. Well, in the film, I think there were days when you might only find one of these mushrooms. You might find one. And of course, there's all kinds of middlemen between Suklal and his friends and fellow foragers and the end user. So I think I, I saw him mentioning how he gets like was it maybe six US dollars per specimen, depending on the quality of the specimen? Does that sound right? Yeah, it's about there. And that price is constantly fluctuating season to season. So some years it's $3, other years it's $10. And of course, in Nepal, there isn't that much competition, in particular in Suklal's area. The competition isn't so strong. So he feels like it's okay to invite his friends along to come and hunt with him, you know? And then the way that the the supply chain goes from the forager to a bulk buyer, and then that bulk buyer goes to another bulk buyer, and then ultimately uh, those major weight purchasers end up in in, uh, Lhasa or Beijing or Shanghai or these 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 uh, these sort of nodes of trade for this mushroom and by the time these people get there uh you know the 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 monetary value of their load is a small fortune for many people around the world perhaps up to 80% of the global population 6 dollars a day or 12 dollars a day is a total game changer 
which is insane for most of us to think about. And watching the film and seeing how these guys work, you get a real sense of appreciation for how difficult it is to spot these cordyceps fruiting bodies. Even in one of the scenes where we're looking straight at the cordyceps and its natural habitat, you had to go to the close-up for me to notice the fruiting body. Did you learn any tips for what type of environment or indicator species you could look for to potentially identify a cordy? It's, it's incredibly difficult to find, small enough to hide behind a single blade of grass. And, and really, the truth is, hunting cordyceps is the same as hunting any other mushroom that's difficult to see. And it's all about pattern recognition. You train your brain to look for these specific features, and then you scan the landscape. And the closer you get to the ground, the more likely you are to see it. So that's why they're like literally on their hands and knees and uh, and crawling around these high elevation slopes. And uh, Suklal explained to me that, you know, he's got his spots. Like, they actually turn up in the same spots year after year, the same little areas. So after years of hunting them, like any other mushroom, you know, okay, I'm going to start here and then sort of spiral my way out from from where I know they might be. And then he was telling me, like, oh, they like to grow at the bases of rocks and... Um, in terms of the plants and stuff, there was no indicator species that he could identify or was aware of. He just had his zones where he'd like to go. And then, of course, uh, he, he knew like if he was exploring a new area that he would look at the bases of cliffs and around boulders. And, you know, I did actually find a couple myself, but I was up there for two days before I was able to. And I think it, that was part of my training period was just like, learning that pattern to to search for and like allowing my eyes to relax and not see the grass you know when you look at a field of grass you always see is grass <laughs> so habitat destruction and biodiversity loss are a huge issue in Nepal and worldwide, of course, but also over-harvesting of the cordyceps, which I believe may be more of an issue in neighboring Tibet, where there's quite a few more people involved in the foraging and the trade of wild cordyceps sinensis. But nevertheless, it's a huge issue in Nepal as well. So I'm curious if you think that there's any kind of a path forward for continuing to support the livelihoods and to buttress the socioeconomic opportunities for people like Suklal in the face of a growing cataclysmic climate catastrophe where the cordyceps aren't fruiting as much. How do we even move forward with this? I know that the film poses this question, but I'm curious if you have any answers for us that you may be willing to drop right now. Yeah, I mean, the short answer is cultivation. That's, that's, that's really the key here. In 1999, the Chinese government declared um, this Ophiocordyceps sinensis an endangered species due to over-harvesting. And because of the over-harvesting, it's kind of created this perfect storm of environmental and habitat destruction. So on one hand, you have more people going after it uh, because it's so valuable. And then the more people that harvest it, the less there is. So that pushes the value up again. And then you have um, climate change, ch literally warming the habitat so that the mushrooms don't want to fruit. And uh, then, then there is... Um, okay, so those are the three major variables of this perfect storm where people are incentivized to go get more of them because they're running out. 
And that's just a terrible situation to be in. And um, Chinese cultivators and scientists have been working for 50 years to try and crack the code on growing the fruit body on the caterpillar, this ghost moth caterpillar. And after 50 years of research and development, they have finally figured it out. And this is essential because now they're able to produce what is speculated to be about 50 tons a year. And the interesting thing about this is that they're not advertising this technology. They're not saying, hey, hey, you know, we did it. We raised, you know, they released a scientific paper saying we did it, but that's it. They're not marketing. And so what they're doing is they're integrating their cultivated crop into the wild harvested crop to keep that value high. And at this point, it's still incredibly expensive to cultivate these fruit bodies. Um, but on the other hand, uh, eventually that price is going to come down. And what that's going to do is, it, yes, okay, so there's going to be, um, oh, okay, okay, so <laughs> there's just so much going on with that question. <laughs> there's a big one here. Yeah, I, I, you're breaking it down quite nicely, though. Please continue. Okay, so on the foraging, so on one hand you have the cultivation, and that's going to alleviate pressure from the environment, all right? But it's also going to take jobs away from the local foragers. So you can't really escape this situation without harming people's livelihood if they're depending on this as part of their annual income. That's going to be a uh, necessary side effect of saving the environment up there. But the, the Ophiocordyceps actually has two ways of propagating itself. One is that the the spores uh, enter the caterpillar just directly if they're in the soil and they just, the caterpillar happens or the larvae just happens to rub up against one in this special spot on the neck and then it gets inside them. Or the spore is attached to uh, a plant root that the larvae is feeding on. Um, and then what happens is that that spore actually develops a relationship with the plant and so now the plant is helping propagate the species. And so theoretically, and this is just me speculating, of course, that, for example, if there were no mushrooms fruiting that year, you would have a, a sort of a rest period for the whole habitat. But that doesn't mean that the mushroom would have gone extinct that year. It's still living underground on the roots of the plants and in those spores that didn't target a larvae. You follow me? So, yeah, this is great. so, so there's this kind of hope that, <laughs> that for example, if we reach this kind of critical mass with the foraging and there's very few fruit bodies, that means most of the foragers are just going to abandon ship. All right. And so that's going to protect the habitat for at least a season or two. And then that will give time for the mushroom to recuperate, you know, to grow again and to target more larvae. And the larvae life cycle is part of this too. It's a critical component to, to this whole equation, which is it takes like four to five years from, from egg to infection for the mushroom to find its home in its caterpillar substrate. So, 
they have this kind of mutualistic life cycle that for a time, for at least a few years of their early life, the, the caterpillar is infected, but not dead from it. And it's only when the conditions are exactly right and, I don't know, a number of other factors that that the mushroom actually kills the caterpillar and compels it to move to that certain depth with its head up towards the ground. And then it has to wait for those environmental conditions to be exactly right for it to fruit, you know, moisture and humidity and temperature and even um, atmospheric pressure factors into that. And so these these Chinese cultivators that have cracked the code are incorporating all of these variables into their growing um, technology. So it's not just about, you know, infecting a bunch of larvae with the spores. They have to mimic this high alpine environment, including things like the, the, the atmospheric pressure, which to me is like, wow, like I've grown a few mushrooms in my day and it's really just a matter of controlling the heat and the humidity and the light. But when you factor in things like pressure and elevation <laughs> and other living organisms. I mean, it's it's pretty mind-blowing what they've accomplished. And the more folks we have on the podcast, the more momentum this answer of cultivation receives. Quite a few folks have expressed the same sentiment that you've just shared with us. And as many of us know, there is remarkable innovation in the mushroom space, spread out across a number of different industries and concerns, which orbit around the cultivation of fungi. There are 17 United Nations Sustainable Development Goals that many municipalities around the world are adopting policy to help implement. And these goals include equity and education targets, biodiversity conservation targets, cleaner and safer human settlements, quite a few more. And I don't believe that I'm simply high on my own supply of exotic and medicinal mushrooms when I say that most if not all, of these goals can be met by the appropriate leveraging of fungi and by micropreneurs who make the connection between adaptive and versatile abilities of fungi as food, medicine, materials, shelter, equilibrator, etc., and the pressing global issues that we're addressing right now, which are described in these sustainable development goals. Okay, let me step off my soapbox. And next up, let's talk about the overlap between cordyceps, sinensis, and cordyceps militaris. It's my understanding they've got a lot of overlapping polysaccharides and beta-glucans, but clearly one is sold for much higher of a price than the other. So how much in common do the cordyceps militaris and the cordyceps sinensis have? Well, the first thing is cordyceps militaris has higher concentrations of cordycepin compared to the wild-crafted Ophiocordyceps sinensis. So you're actually getting more of that cordyceps acid and cordycepin in the cultivated varieties than you do in the wild-crafted ones. And that, that's actually, that was kind of an eye-opener for me because that's one of the most precious active compounds in there is the adenosine triphosphate. That's, but, but the, but the uh, cordyceps sinensis is you know anti-tumor, uh, anti-inflammatory. Um, it's an antioxidant. You know it has it has a number of beneficial medicinal qualities. But what I think makes it so precious is that it is also rare. And there's this sort of attitude, and this is just my opinion, that um, culturally 
um, Asians and I think Chinese in particular, and forgive me if this is just like too much of a sweeping generalization, but they have a reputation for going after those rare and precious things. And those rare and precious things are often illegal and often um, unethical. <laughs> and and it's... it's Tiger penis. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're exactly. It's like, it's those kinds of things like bare gallbladders and like these very specific naturally occurring things that are, have this sort of perceived value because they are rare. But the what I think what it boils down to, the bottom line, is that they can cultivate better medicine. And that's a really important thing to understand. Cordyceps militaris is legit. It's a delicious gourmet medicinal mushroom. It's easily grown. It can be grown en masse, and you don't have to cultivate insects in order to grow it. And that's a beautiful thing. And that's what's one, that's one of the cool things about this new Ophiocordyceps sinensis cultivation technology is that because they're controlling every aspect of the environment, including the substrate and the soils that those larvae are, 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 um, are in and the, like the whole they, they control the whole environment, which means they can reduce the heavy metals in that medicine. They can actually make better medicine growing it than nature can in these circumstances. And, you know, that might be difficult for some uh, natural medicine people to, you know, accept. <laughs> but the truth is these wild harvested Ophiocordyceps sinensis uh, are, are, have high levels of arsenic and other heavy metals. And so, you know, on one hand, they're good medicine, but if you macro dose them, you could find yourself in a sticky situation or, or harm, harm yourself essentially by eating too many. And, and, and I'm saying that to compare it to what they're doing in cultivation, which is making more potent, better medicinal mushrooms. And so th I think, I think that's just an interesting aspect of, of, of how medicinal mushroom cultivation is evolving and why it matters to supply this massive demand. Like still, China and most of Asia have the, the greatest demand on all cultivated mushrooms, hands down. They take more than 90% of everything that's produced. We in the West are just now beginning to get into those markets and to become a consumer market for all those growers. And um, you, you, you may think that because of this quote-unquote shroom boom that's happening now and has been for the last couple of years – um, that it's going to be this, you know, that, that we're like, you know, up to our eyeballs already. Well, we have just begun compared to Asia and China in terms of mushroom consumption. I witnessed our friend Alex Dorr from Mushroom Revival give a presentation on Telluride about this Chinese dominance in the mushroom world. And one of the things that stood out to me among many qualities of this Chinese mushroom legacy is the availability of craft cordyceps. Now, I don't know any single storefront in the US or even a supplier, to be honest, where one can buy craft cordyceps. I know a number of cultivators and relatively small purveyors of cordyceps. Shout out many of you listening to the episode right now. But these cordyceps in China, apparently, you can buy like 12 different fruiting body species at markets there. They're all grown on different substrates and they all have nuances in terms of profile and potency, etc. It's almost akin to the craft beer industry in the United States. 
Now, Hamilton, I've noticed that you just this week have launched www.hamiltonsextracts.com. So I'm curious, what can you tell us about this fledgling micropreneurial venture that you've got dialed in? So my passion as a filmmaker is to tell great stories. And my passion as a microphile is just to immerse myself in mycology as much as I can. And um, I'm producing a series of documentaries about mushrooms. And Suklal's Hunt is really the pilot episode. Uh, and I have uh, an episode about Matsutake in the works. I'm going to be shooting an episode about um, collecting um, uh, cyanessins this fall. And um, so making movies costs money and it's time and energy. And as much as it is my passion, I, I can't pay for it all myself. So I developed a organic mushroom extract company to then help me fund all of these mycology based film projects. So basically I figured out a way to pay myself to make movies about mushrooms. And I'm using high-potency organic mushroom extracts to fuel that passion and to fuel the process. And um, I'm very, very excited about it because I finally... I feel like I've cracked my own code in a way where I've I've been able to successfully combine the things that I deeply care about and make them work synergistically and harmoniously so that I can actually go out and and hunt mushrooms and make movies all at the same time and connect with really amazing people doing really cool things very similarly I think to what you're doing with Micropreneur podcast is that you've created this platform to to um, give give people a voice and to share what they're doing and also learn from each other and 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 share all this this knowledge and Hamilton's mushroom extracts is about uh, exploring the ecology of mycology and making mushrooms fun accessible and entertaining and I'm just I just want to tell all the cool stories like I I'm constantly hearing about new cool things in this vast field of mycology. And, you know, there was a time when I thought I was going to be a just an ID guy. You know, when I spent 10 years just IDing mushrooms every time I went out and teaching myself how to ID mushrooms using the literature and the books provided by uh, the, our predecessors, you know, our old school mycologists. And, um, and I feel like I'm kind of part of this new wave of, of uh, citizen scientists, but I don't go so far to call myself a scientist because, you know, after ID, I discovered cultivation and was like, oh, wow, this is, you know, I'm going to be a mushroom farmer and I'm going to, I'm going to save the world because I'm going to grow all my own food. And I'm still very passionate about that, but I, uh, you know, through that, that led to discovering mushroom medicine and medicinal mushrooms and functional mushrooms in particular. And part of the catalyst for that was moving back in with my grandfather at 97 years old and um, watching him lose his mind from dementia and being intimate and close to that process, like as one of his caretakers. 
and and realizing that there is actually medicine out there that could have prevented this. And then that opened the door into all the nootropics and arenacines and hercinones and of course psilocybin and all this brain food that I should have been feeding him 10 years ago or 20 years ago so that he would have died of old age and not of a rotten brain. And that was a major turning point for me where I realized like this is powerful medicine. This is this is this is legit, you know? And when I started taking it myself about 7 years ago, I have literally been sick one time in seven years and I have two children and for most of those years I was living with six adults. So it was a petri dish of possibilities <laughs> and, and, I, and that's, that's really a testament for me to the power of this medicine and that's you know creating these natural defenses against all the, the bombardment of bacteria and viruses and, you know, you know all, all the shit that we have to deal with to stay healthy. And, um, and so I feel like m my personal experience was part of that motivation to say, you know what, let's bring this to as many people as we can. And, um, and then I started vetting Chinese mushroom growers and it took me three years before I landed on my suppliers and uh, I went through a lot of different suppliers before I found the ones that I really love and trust. And they are sincerely the masters of mushrooms. I mean, they are literally 4,000 years ahead of us. I'm going through that same arc right now, sourcing functional mushroom extracts in bulk from Chinese suppliers, which has been a real adventure to say the least, and an ongoing and ever colorful one. So I'm gonna need to pick your brain about your experiences and insights regarding Chinese farms and supply chains after we wrap up this episode. But right now, before we let you go, we need to know, how can the people watch Suklal's Hunt? Well, stay tuned. Follow me on Facebook at Hamilton's Mushroom Extracts. Follow me on Instagram at Hamilton's Mushrooms. And uh, subscribe on YouTube to Hamilton's Mushrooms Extracts because that's where I'm going to drop all my content. And the films are so critical to launching this brand. And Suklal's Hunt is, is part of this official grand opening of Hamilton's Mushrooms Extracts.com. And so I'm really excited about making this film publicly available. It toured the festival circuit for a year, and now I'm going to release it for free so that everybody can enjoy this story of hunting cordyceps in the Himalaya. And so get me on those platforms, and you will be the first to see all the new content, including the next documentary that's going to be about Matsutake and its role in the environment and the mushroom hunters going after it and all the social, political, and economic implications of, of the, that mushroom. And of course, check out The Mycophiles, which is the mushroom news show that I do. It's a, it's a kind of mushroom news satire. And be careful, you know, check your sources. If you're buying mushroom extracts online, you know, make sure you're getting the good stuff. And if you're wondering about whether or not you're getting good stuff, reach out to me and I'll help you figure it out because I have access to legitimate labs and third-party testing and the whole thing. So, yeah. Hamilton Pevick of Faux Real Films and Hamilton's Mushroom Extracts, we sincerely appreciate you dropping by the Michaelpreneur podcast and we wish you continued prosperity and fulfillment with your ongoing ventures. 
Thank you so much. Mush love. There's so much to cover in the mushroom universe and so many mycopreneurs leveraging the infinite potential of fungi to create a more ecologically balanced, inclusive, and equitable world for all of us mischievous little monkeys. I am completely stoked that you've chosen to spend some of your hard-earned time in our little corner of the mycoverse. Hop on the gram, say what's up, at mycopreneur podcast. That's the handle. Don't get it twisted. We've got the full suite of social media up and running. Twitter, Mycopreneur. Got the YouTubes dialed in, Mycopreneur. Drop us a line. Tell your grandma and your kooky uncle. Tell your wife and your kids. If you're a Mycopreneur yourself, you want to hop on the pod, by all means, willkommen, bienvenidos, welcome. Don't be a stranger. Let us know your thoughts on this episode, and also let us know what you want to hear in future episodes. This is a team effort. Thanks for stopping by the Mycopreneur Podcast. Have a lovely day. We'll see you back here next week.